have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. It's so great to see you guys this morning. Uh, listen, we're in week two of our series starting through the first half of the book of Mark. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Mark chapter one. If you don't own a Bible, uh, there are some Bibles in the back of the room. Or if you didn't bring one today, you want to grab one of those, f- feel free to take one of those home with you. Uh, you can go and do that right now. It won't distract me too much. Uh, and there's also then these very cool Mark scripture journals uh, that are in the lobby. We might be out today. I know we gave away a bunch, but if you didn't grab one of these, this is our free gift uh, to you from our church as we study the book of Mark together. So Mark chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 14 where we left off last week. Uh, before I do that though, uh, I would like to just quickly recognize someone. He doesn't know that I'm going to do this, uh, but my friend Noah is here today in the back there. Noah, could you give everybody a wave? All right, so here's what you need to know about Noah. Uh, He's this year's president uh, for the Kennesaw State Marietta Campus BCM, uh, which means that he is leading the charge of students that we're connected with uh, to reach and disciple students on campus at Kennesaw State. And so I want you guys to know that so you can be praying for Noah uh, and his leadership. Uh, He's a Mercy Hill guy, and we love when our our guys are leading over there on campus. So can you guys do that? Pray for my friend Noah. We, We agree to do that? Yeah, good. Good. All right, let's get started today. Um, So I don't know about you, uh, but for me, uh, Amazon Prime has totally ruined me. I have this crazy expectation that whatever I order from anyone ever online should show up in two days. Anybody, are you like that? If it doesn't show up in two days, I start to feel incredibly anxious, right? It's this idea of waiting for something to arrive. And so unfortunately, there's a lot of other distributors online that don't do two-day shipping, and they also don't take uh, additional money from me, you know, every year, uh, and I don't even know how much it is anymore. Like, I just sign up for it because I love the two-day shipping. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of waiting on something in anticipation, hoping that it will arrive, but often it is a mixture of anxiety and and, um, and this like this uh, wanting for the thing to be in your hand. It was like some excitement and a little anxiety. Anybody ever been there before? All right, single guys, let me just give you a heads up. Married guys already know this. Waiting around is married life. I mean, that's what it is. And you got other married guys kind of experience that. You go shopping, it takes a lot longer than it used to. Getting everyone in the car takes 20 minutes for some reason. At my house, I'm not exactly sure why it happens that way, but everything takes a little bit longer. So what we see when we pick up in Mark chapter one is a people who have been waiting in anticipation for the arrival of a promise. And they have been waiting for God himself to intervene in human history in order to make good on his promise. Their expectation has been that this person that we talked about last week, this Messiah or Deliverer or Christ, all those words, are about the same person in the scripture, is going to come and set things right. What you might not know about the story of the Bible is the Old Testament ends, and then God's people don't hear from God for 400 years. Now, you think waiting four days on the package shipped to you by Old Navy instead of Amazon is excruciating. Could you imagine the situation? Waiting for God to make good on his promise and not hearing from God for 400 years until this very moment. The moment that we're going to pick up on uh, within Mark's gospel. So Mark 
chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John's arrest, that's John the Baptist, is arrested. Uh, we'll find out later that John is actually going to be executed. Jesus came to Galilee, which is the larger region uh, where his hometown was, proclaiming the gospel of God. Verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray together and ask that God would make his word clear to us today. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word. Thank you so much uh, that your spirit inspired men uh, to record the very words uh, of you uh, so that it could be edifying for us today. Uh, may we receive it with glad hearts. Amen. So here's what Mark records as the beginning of Jesus' ministry that he first comes proclaiming. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, there are going to be a lot of instances where Jesus is going to heal people, where Jesus is going to perform miraculous signs. But Mark wants us right up front to be very clear about the message that Jesus proclaims. He calls it the gospel of God. Now, last week we talked about this word gospel. It just means the announcement of good news. It's joyful news. And so what Mark says is Jesus came first and foremost, starting his ministry, proclaiming really good news. And Mark says it's good news from God. The good news that we find is two statements, two simple statements that Jesus makes. So in verse 14, he says, first, the time is fulfilled. Time. What does he mean about time? Now, this idea really goes all the way back to the very beginning in our Bibles. What we find in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that God has created everything that is, everything that exists, God created. And he created everything to exist in harmony with each other, including people, created two people at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve dwell in a right relationship with God, and they live in a right relationship with each other, and they live in a right relationship with all of creation. Well, then what we find very quickly in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve decide it would be better for them to not live under God's rule, but to determine their own destiny that the best option for them would be to cast aside the direction that God has given them in, in, in their lives and decide for themselves how they should live. And so at that time is uh, what we call the fall of man, or when Adam and Eve decide to sin, to rebel against God. Now, a lot of things happen in Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to unpack all of that today. But in this state of brokenness and in this state of rebellion against God, everything in all of creation gets fractured or broken. And so the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. People don't relate to each other the way that people are supposed to relate to each other. And maybe most importantly, people no longer relate to God in the way that they're supposed to relate to God. But God makes a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there is a deliverer who is coming, who's going to set things right. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, there's this echo of this deliverer who is supposed to come, this one from God who is going to set things right the, the way that God intended all the way back in the garden. And so when Jesus announces the time is fulfilled, he's saying that time is now. The time where God is going to act in a decisive way in human history to set all things right. 
The time is now. The things that were set in motion way back in Genesis are now coming to fruition, Jesus is saying, in this moment. Anybody been watching the Olympics over the past couple of weeks? Man, I love the Olympics. In our house, we watch a lot of the Olympics. Uh, my wife, Kristen, absolutely loves the Olympics. She's been staying up late at like 2 a.m. to make sure she can see a lot of things live. I go to bed mainly because I'm a grouchy old man and I like my sleep. But one thing I love is I, watch, I love watching track. You guys love watching track? I hate that they always save it till later, right? Because that's like one of the things that I love to watch the most. And, and in track, the, there's the sprinters, right, who are running the race. And that is just like, boom, right? Zero to 100, all out, just sprinting as fast as they can. But if any of you guys this Olympics watch some of the longer distance runners, right? What, what happens? They're running together often. And sometimes the announcers will be like, hey, this guy's favored in the race. And so I'll try to pick out the guy who's favored or the woman who's favored. And they will not be in the lead, right, at the beginning of the race. And so they're kind of running and running and you're running and you're like, hey, uh, the favored uh, uh, athlete here is about to lose. And then all of a sudden they turn it on. You guys watch this? And it looks as if everyone else is standing still right? I mean, it is incredible the way that these like amazing athletes can turn it on in a second and just blow past everybody else, other world-class athletes. Well, this is not unlike what Jesus is saying. These Olympic athletes, we know what they train for years and years and years. And they pace themselves in the race, waiting for the exact moment to surge ahead. And what Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. This is it. You've heard the promises, you've got the words of the prophets, you know what God is going to do, you have his word, and now this is the time where God is turning it on to the finish line to finish the job, to make good on his promises. So first he says this good news is the time is fulfilled. God is going to act decisively in history to set things right. But the second thing he says is the kingdom is at hand. Now what's the kingdom of God? We often use that language in church. The kingdom of God is anywhere where God rules and reigns. The kingdom of God in the scripture is connected to this promise that God is going to return to his rightful place on the throne, not only of all creation, but over every single human heart. And Jesus is saying that time, that time where God's going to initiate his kingdom, that time is now, it's at hand. God is showing up in human history to make all things right. I am um, a big C.S. Lewis fan. I don't know if you guys know that or not, mainly because uh, I fell in love at an early age with the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read that Narnia series? I love The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. For those of you who've been around Mercy Hill for a little bit, you've heard me admit uh, that I, while I'm not very emotional, uh, that several years ago my wife and I went to go see The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in the theater, and I like broke down in tears in the middle of that movie, and my wife, who's normally a crier, I'm normally not, she was making fun of me, right? She's like, you're crying at this? Like, what are you, this is... A children's story, what's going on? But I just have like this connection with those stories. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. That first book is the first written book. I know, anyway, the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In the title, we have the lion and the witch and the wardrobe. And in chapter one, we see the wardrobe. You ever noticed this before? Meet the wardrobe first. And then in chapter two, we meet the witch. But it's actually not until chapter seven that we even get a hint of who the lion is. 
That's when Mr. Beaver is talking to the kids. And he says, Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. And the kids, remember, they don't know who this who Aslan is. They don't know about the lion. They're, they just, and, and, the, and C.S. Lewis describes it, they're just kind of struck that something important is about to happen. And we don't know as the readers, unless you've read ahead or read it before, that this is the lion from the title until the very next chapter, where Mr. Beaver explains again who Aslan is, that he's the lion. This is what he says. Mr. Beaver says, he's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood but not often here, you understand. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back, that he's in Narnia at this very moment. This is what Mark is trying to get us to feel, the same thing that Lewis is trying to get us to feel. It's been a long time. The king seemingly hasn't been present for a long, long time. But now that Jesus has arrived, the king is here. And we've waited in the book eight chapters. We've waited in human history for hundreds and hundreds of years. But now at this time, God is on the move. The kingdom is at hand. God is going to work. The time is fulfilled, decisive action in all human history to establish his kingdom, to set all things right. Or we could say it this way. The good news is that Jesus is the true king and that he has come to set all things right. And maybe right now you're thinking, right, but Brandon, here's the thing. Um, I know uh, this happened a couple thousand years ago, and I can look around and see that things aren't all set right. Right? The kingdom, Jesus said, is at hand. Well, why are we still experiencing violence and corruption and injustice? Why can I not get along with my neighbors? And why do I have this thing in the very middle of my heart that pulls me into brokenness? We're going to talk about this more as we go through the book of Mark. But there's two aspects of the kingdom. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. One, sometimes we talk about the already kingdom. And what we mean by the already kingdom is that when Jesus came, he set up and instituted certain things that are set right. The already kingdom means if you have trusted in Jesus, then you are already in a right relationship with God. That if you have trusted and believed in Jesus, that you are already adopted into God's family as a son and daughter. In the already kingdom, some people have already been healed. Some people have already been freed from addictions. And the church is proclaiming and is an instrument of the kingdom bringing restoration and life to our world. There are some things about the kingdom that are already right now. But there's this other aspect of the kingdom called the not yet, which means this, that when Jesus comes again the second time, he is going to make all things all right in all places. That there will be no sickness, there will be no death, all things will be restored the way that they are meant to be. And so we live at this time, we're gonna talk about this more, this is just to satisfy your curiosity in this very moment, where there are some things about God's kingdom that are already established, some things about God's kingdom that we are looking forward to being established when Jesus comes again. Does that make sense for the curious? All right, good. But what Jesus wants his listeners to understand and what Mark wants his readers to understand is this. The good news is that Jesus is the true king 
And he has come to set all things right. And Jesus' coming is this decisive moment in all of human history to make things right. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues with some instructions. In other words, he says, if this news is true, the time is fulfilled, the time is now. And if this news is true, the kingdom is at hand, then that requires something of us. The arrival of the true king demands something of us. This is why in verse 15, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, this first word, repent, is a very churchy word. We talk about it often in church. And for some of us, it conjures up all sorts of really negative uh, memories, right? Of some preacher somewhere with a heavy southern draw demanding and screaming repent. Maybe you experienced this on your college campus, right? The guys with the big posters, right, standing in the middle of the campus, preaching and screaming repent. But Jesus also teaches that we are to repent. And so what does this word repent mean? Well, in the Bible, repent just means to turn around or to change your mind or to fix your thinking. And so what Jesus is actually saying here is when the true king arrives, one of the things that it demands of you and me is that we change our minds about who rules and reigns over us. It requires us to respond. Just like, you guys remember last year? Popeye's chicken sandwich, Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich, right? You remember this? And some of us experienced Popeye's chicken sandwich for the first time, and we had to repent of believing that Chick-fil-A had the greatest chicken sandwich of all time. Now, we had to say, I got to go to Popeye's, and I got to sit in the drive-thru line, and no one's going to smile, and no one's going to say my pleasure, but it might be worth it, right? And here's what Jesus is saying. When the real thing comes on the scene, one of the things that it demands or requires of you is that you change your mind, is you change the way you're thinking, that you turn around, that you repent of whatever rule or reigns over you currently in this moment. I love Timothy Lane and Paul David Tripp say repentance is a form of emptying the heart. I love that language. Repentance is a form of emptying the heart. And what they mean is that we identify false kings in our lives. That we identify false practices and false beliefs in our hearts. And repentance is the act of emptying those things out of our hearts. Jesus says there's a second response, though. It's not just repent, but it's to believe the gospel. What he means here is that we should believe that the message is true, that it is absolutely true that the true king has arrived on the scene. It's absolutely true that God is going to act in a decisive way in human history to make good on his promises, that it is absolutely true that Jesus is this king and Jesus is the means and the way by which God is going to set all things right. Jesus is saying to his listeners and saying to us, you have believed a lot of things. 
You have going all the way back to Adam and Eve believed that you could rule and reign over your own life. You have believed that perhaps every Disney movie of all time has gotten it right. And that what you need most is just to follow your heart and to dream big. You have believed perhaps that something somewhere is going to save you. You believe perhaps that obedience to God's law is going to save you or going to church is going to save you. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I want you to repent of that and believe something new. That the way God is going to deliver you, the way God is acting in human history is Jesus is saying me. Me being on the scene. My life, and then if we fast forward the story, my death and resurrection, this is what God is up to. Now, in this way, belief is like filling. And so what Jesus is asking, commanding of us, is that in repentance, we would empty ourselves, and in belief or faith, we would then refill our hearts. Um, so one of the worst things about Amazon uh, is it's so easy to order something. But if it's not right, then you got to return it. And I know some of you guys are planners and you think ahead and so you save the boxes. Uh, I don't. I just chunk boxes, right? And so often what happens is when I have to return something to Amazon, I don't have a box. And so I'm scrambling for a box to put this return back in. Anybody ever been there before? And so what happens? So if there's an empty box laying around my house, um, usually what happens is I just throw random stuff in there. Anybody have that? You just like fill it with whatever is around. You're like, oh, I got this box. Let me just throw it in there. And so this stick it somewhere in the garage, right? And so repentance and faith or repentance and belief is very similar to this. Is first what you and I have to do is empty out the stuff that we don't need, Right? And so currently in my box, I got a half uh, full box of uh, Hostess cinnamon rolls, right? Don't need it. We got some half and half, made a mess there, right? We're getting rid of the flashlight, and I don't even know, I think this goes in the kitchen. I don't know what that's about, right? Like that we dump it out in order that we can fill it with something else. And so in the Christian tradition... This idea of repentance and faith is an emptying and a filling. And it is constant. An emptying and a filling. Taking out what is unnecessary or taking out what pulls us away from God, away from the truth, and refilling us with the truth. Which means part of the practice of repentance is asking ourselves this question. What gospel am I currently believing in? What good news am I currently believing to be good news? And for some of us, that might be the good news of sex. The belief, like our culture, that an ultimate experience will bring us ultimate satisfaction. And then followed quickly by the letdown and the follow-up of, well, that ultimate experience wasn't ultimate because it was with the wrong person or the wrong location or the wrong time. But we believe this at our hearts. If I just experience the right thing in the right way, I'm going to be happy. Or perhaps the good news of achievement, that if I just reached a certain rung on the ladder, I will be content and my dad will finally approve of me, and my wife will finally think I'm great. If I can just make it there, 
And then when we make it there and we find emptiness, that's quickly replaced by it's just not high enough. So i got to keep working harder and harder to get there. Or perhaps we're believing in the good news of authenticity. It's current hot button for us. That if we could just be who we really are at heart, the real self, our authentic selves, if we could just be that, then we would be okay and everything would be all right. And what we're finding in our current cultural moment is that people are changing their own genders to try to be more authentically who they are and yet finding even more depression and suicide on the other side. It's a false gospel. Or maybe perhaps the gospel of divorce. Now please hear what I'm saying. There are some instances and times when the Bible gives opportunities and signs off on divorce. But for many of us, divorce is just escapism because we believe at the heart if we could just find the better version of our spouse, then we're going to be happy, never turning our attention to ourselves. And we think over and over again, if I could just get out of this, there's something better on the other side. Or perhaps the good news of technology, which tells us over and over again, the simpler your life is, if you trust in me, the more happy you will become. Or perhaps just the good news of comfort, that if you can get to a place in life where you don't have to work or do anything, or if your kids could just stop driving you insane, then you could have a moment of peace. There's more. There are all of these competing gospels, all of these competing good news. Some of them even good things. Most of them gifts from God. Sex is not bad in the right context. Achievement is not bad, right? Technology is a gift in a lot of ways. But what happens subtly is these good news start to preach to our hearts and we believe that our happiness or our salvation or our deliverance or our peace comes from them. So what Jesus is instructing us to do here is to remember there is one true king, one king who has come to set all things right, and then he's giving us this amazing spiritual practice of repenting of or turning away from or changing our mind about false gospels in order to trust in him. I love Paul David Tripp helps us to do this by asking a series of questions. He gives an example from his own life of comfort. And he says, part of repentance is asking, this pull for my own comfort, when is the last time comfort laid down its life for me? This pull for comfort, when is the last time that comfort brought me into the family of God? This pull, he says, and it could be anything for you, this pull of a false gospel in your life and my life, when is the last time that this this false gospel actually gave me an inviting sense of contentment and joy. And Paul David Tripp says, by asking these questions, we can empty ourselves of false gospels and false kings and fill ourselves with the truth. Now, there's one more thing, and this is important. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. Repentance is a lifelong mark of a follower of Jesus, not a one-time act. Repentance is a lifelong mark of a follower of Jesus, not a one-time act. 
I love Martin Luther, 1517, nails the 95 Thesis to the door to Wittenberg uh, Chapel, sparking the Protestant Reformation. He didn't know it at the time. I love thesis number one, the first statement of the entire thing. This is what sparked the Protestant Reformation. He says this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Here's what Luther is saying, that this process of emptying yourself of false gospels, false news, false saviors, false kings, and this process of filling your heart with the truth and believing the gospel is a lifelong practice for followers of Jesus. It is a daily practice. This is why we often encourage you to begin your day with Bible reading and prayer. Because the spiritual practice behind that is beginning with this practice of confession. God, this is not only what I've done wrong, but this is what I've believed wrong over the past couple of days. And then filling your heart with the truth. Repent, empty, believe, 